This is The Direct Message, a podcast about the pivotal policy moments that made and continue to shape the millennial generation. We're your hosts, Christian Hosam and Mayaka Sampson. This podcast is produced by New America with support from the City Foundation's Pathways to Progress initiative, which seeks to incubate and advance ideas that are capable of transforming policy systems for the better. Christian and I are two of 10 Millennial Public Policy Fellows here at New America. Michael, there is a story that like, I just, I want you to, t- to tell because I think it just like frames everything about <laughs> family and social policy and just, and just basic white people. <laughs> okay, so eight years ago, I was in the eighth grade. I was in middle school. I was with my mother in the checkout line of Walmart and we're rural New Mexico. And my mom's debit card was really scratched up and she swiped it several times, but it just wouldn't read. And this white lady behind us were getting really, really impatient. Um, and at some point, she, I heard her say like, Indian freeloaders. Did her welfare run out? And it was at that moment I really understood that just because we were in line and my mother was very obviously working class and brown and a single mother and there's no father to be seen. um, Yeah, she made a lot of assumptions about who we were, um, why we were on social assistance. um, And there was a stigma attached to um, my mother being a single mother. and so since then, I've been really interested in social policy and what and why people hate people on welfare so much and why they hate brown people so much. Um, so that's why I study public policy and that's why I studied ethnic studies. And that's why I'm the family-centered social policy millennial fellow here. Today on our podcast, we are so excited to welcome um, professor, writer, teacher, podcaster, and just all around like brilliant lady, Dr. Marsha Chatlin. Thank you so much for being with us today. I'm having so much fun already and we just got started. <laughs> it's a real pleasure. So part of this podcast, kind of the, the genesis behind it is gonna we just wanted to kind of have an opportunity to kind of do something public facing. But also, and Micah will add to this in just a second, like we wanted to think through what are the major things that like have shaped like this generation, right? And there are ways to do it through each episode, but like it, it's difficult to think through, like, especially in young adulthood, like, all the things that, like, are going on, like, un- behind the scenes in, like, a lower frequency. And so this is what we're, we're talking about today. Yeah, like, they have those PBS documentaries about the pivotal things that shaped baby boomers or Generation X. And it's sort of hard to do it in the moment because hindsight is always twenty twenty. But we're trying to do it right now. And I think we're about two decades old and old enough to sort of think back as to what areas of policy and what uh, major world events influenced I mean, who PBS we are. PBS had them. So did VH1. Oh, yeah. I love the 90s. Pivotal, I uh, love the 90s. Best Week Ever. Best Week Ever I remember that. was great. I mean, did you watch The Soup on E? Ooh. It was my favorite. That was before Joel McKay like, became, like, went on to Community. Best, like, it was just, and he had, like, a, he had, like, a little, like, like, chihuahua and, like, each, like, clip like that, the child would like like be like the preview of the scene, and like he would like put him in like different scenarios. He tried like once the the child was like a spy. It's like coming down. Like this is like the clip. Like this is the best week ever. I don't know why I told you that. I just haven't lost this in a long time. I kind of miss it. Yeah, I have. But- <laughs> we like a focus group or like a, a support group for people who really were raised on VH1. Can I tell you why I love this conversation yes. so much? Um, so I am. I guess I'm. T- I am not a millennial. I technically technically am a zillennial. 
the X-E-L-E-N-N-I-A-L. Um, so I was born in 1979. And I think that this question that you ask about what policies and what major events really shaped your you know, young adulthood, it's so interesting because I feel like in many ways, I've probably been shaped by a lot of the policies that shaped you and your families. But I was at the tail end, rather, of this moment um, that I don't know if we'll ever get back in this country in terms of people's relationship to social structures. I consider myself the last of the affirmative action generation. I was among the last group of people to benefit from minority scholarships on college campuses. I was among the last group of people who were able to kind of that were really geared to diversity without any kind of apologies or without any kind of caveats. And so just hearing you talk about, you know, the policies that have shaped your generation, I think about not just the policies that have shaped my generation, but the loss of um, policy protections that have also shaped my generation. Feeling like you've come off the tail end of something or that you are sort of the like a light beneficiary of something that happened before is what I sort of feel about welfare reform. I, I don't know where and when the two parent family or the nuclear family left being just a social ideal and turned into an explicit policy goal. Something that really struck me when I was in college was like reading the text of the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act. I, I, I mess up the acronym every time. But one of the explicit goals of it was to reduce the number of out-of-wedlock childbirths. And that is just wild to me that that would become an explicit policy goal. But I, I know there's a story behind that. And I was wondering if you had any insight so like most social safety net programs in the United States, that the idea of a robust welfare state is generally supported by most Americans until that welfare state can actually be used by people of color. And then that welfare state is completely and totally wrong. It's bad. And then it's manipulated in ways so that people of color cannot fully access it. So if we look at the history in the 20th century of social programs to assist the poor, when we think about families that were considered top priorities, especially in the early 20th century, it was war widows. So public housing, public food support, it was this idea that women through no fault of their own had lost their husbands due to war, and they deserved a robust social safety net to help them. As the as the um, the 1910s and 20s and 30s progressed, you started to see things like um, public housing, some type of, again, extension of the state on behalf of the family, either to support them through a temporary loss or to really supplement the role that a man was supposed to play in the household. All of these ideas are predicated on a kind of a white nuclear family that has some opportunity for the man to earn more money, and perhaps in working class contexts, the woman earns some money as well. But even from the moment that these programs become an idea, there's a lot of contention about the state doing too much or overstepping its boundaries in the lives of people. After the Great Depression and with the robust welfare state that's uh, provided through the New Deal, you start to see really active roles for the state to help people through financial difficulties. And it's considered the right thing to do and people support it. It does not become a real problem until you start to see the urbanization of African-Americans out of the South into northern cities. And the problem with that is that in 
in a critical mass of northern cities, blacks actually, their right to vote are pretty respected. They're courted by the Democratic Party on the local and national level, and they need to they need to get something in exchange for their votes. And so access to some of some state benefits, some state offices, those become available. And so by the time we get into the war on poverty in the 1960s and an equalization of social programs, not just welfare and public housing, but social security, that is the moment no one likes any of these programs because the people accessing them are browner and browner. Just like we see the shenanigans with public education and attempts to privatize it or redistrict it or resegregate it, it's because more and more people of color can access it. So I think the thing about the family, though, that's so fascinating is that when we look at welfare policies that emerge in the 1960s, people can't, women can't access welfare benefits if a man is in the house because the assumption is that there is no reason for a man not to be working. Although we know employment discrimination was rampant, especially among African-American communities, about public housing in St. Louis called the Pruitt-Igo myth. And it's about this housing project that is erected and then has to be destroyed, I think, within a decade because it's such a disaster. But part of the narrative in it is that people talk about how social workers could come into your home at midnight to make sure there was no man living in the house. And part of the National Welfare Rights Organization, a group that was started and um, led mostly by poor black women on assistance, comes out of Las Vegas, Nevada. A large part of their advocacy was to challenge this idea that, that they were not whole families because there were no men in the house or that poor women shouldn't have reproductive rights to have as many children as they wish. Or this idea that just because you're poor doesn't mean that you don't have a right to your privacy in your own family, that a social worker shouldn't just barge into your home, and that the state doesn't decide if you should be allowed to have a television or an electric coffee pot. I mean, I don't think welfare recipients were allowed to have televisions until the mid to late 1960s. And so you see the way that like, even at its most micro level, the state is determining what poor people should be allowed to have. And a lot of it's punishment because you're not a traditional family. And the assumption is, if you were a traditional family, family, then you wouldn't be poor, as if there are no poor families in America. And even that, so you, you kind of mentioned this kind of post-war moment of kind of support for families, particularly, or like the, the kind of the, the American ideal is that kind of white nuclear family that kind of deserves support, particularly through things like the GI Bill, to kind of develop kind of like small businesses, kind of support for college education, like all these kinds of moments in which we can say, okay, in this moment, we need a social safety net. And that's the probably the only time in American history in which you kind of have a norm of nuclear families, right? So even this idea of the nuclear family in the way that we can, can kind of consider today is a relatively recent phenomenon. And yet, even in saying that, that kind of tells us that even in that at the only time that we were able to have a nuclear family is the only time we had a strong enough safety net to kind of develop that and have and have one income be enough to sustain a family, right? Because that's that was not the case before and said not the case anymore. Well, also, I mean, it's this idea of um, a large part of this also about anti-communism. So any way you can destroy a social safety net bill is to say that it's socialist or it's communist. I mean, this is the stuff people did with um, health care in the United States with the Affordable Care Act. You know, 
people like Sarah Palin saying such ridiculously irresponsible things as then there's going to be death panels that decides if your grandma lives or dies. I mean, like what? And so in similar ways, a lot of the critique about communism that comes out of the Cold War is that communists are are um, into free love. They don't believe in monogamy. They don't believe in nuclear families. And the state raises your children. And this was actually really, really convincing to stop a universal provision for childcare in the 1970s, right? So I think that you've got this kind of perfect intersection of anti-communism and kind of, you know, anti-people of color sentiments that are shaping policies and that are magnifying a family that I have to question if it ever really existed. And when we think about these ideas about the nuclear family, the idea is so much more powerful than the reality of what this kind of particular arrangement meant at any point in the culture. I saw a lot of that anti-communist sentiment in the the Moynihan report, where um, Daniel Patrick Moynihan warns that um, if nothing is done about the quote-unquote like uh, decaying family social structure among urban Black folks, that people will be more inclined to join Black nationalist movements or uh, build more ties with communist countries. And so it's seen as a tool of social control to sort of restore the family unit. So if we fast forward to the 90s, when you have a Southern Democrat like Bill Clinton running on welfare reform, isn't that something? Someone whose narrative was considered shaped by the fact that he was this guy who came from a family where his mom was a single mom and then remarried, where there was alcoholism and abuse in the household. There was poverty. He was from a town called Hope. So in many ways, he is leveraging a lot of the narratives about the capacity for Americans to lift them up from lift themselves up from their bootstraps and make themselves and all this stuff. And he, you know, governed one of the poorest cities or poorest uh, uh, states. states rather in the country. And in order for him to win after George Bush, the first is to do a classic Democratic turn, tough on crime and welfare responsibility. And those changes in the Welfare Reform Act, they fundamentally changed how long a person could be on public assistance. And the workfare requirement also reduced the capacity for especially women to go back to school. It also made no real provisions for childcare. And it creates these problems that I think are inherent in the way that the United States does welfare is if you earn too much, you lose all your benefits. And if you earn nothing, there's a time clock on what benefits that you can receive. And so, you know, in terms of thinking about your generation, growing up poor in the 1990s was about this balancing act of balancing the bureaucracy and the expectations about work at a time where the service sector was also booming with low-wage work across the country. And so it becomes a moment where you can punish the single mother financially, and also kind of in this post-Reagan moment, you can punish the single mother culturally. And so there's like there's like a double-edged sword going on here that's like cuts, and it cuts, and it cuts on a number of different levels, right? So it's not just that bureaucratically more difficult to access benefits, but it also becomes a moment of personal responsibility and kind of like there's something basically we can we can kind of talk about your moral corruptness by even being in this position in the first place because you should be kind of aspiring to a nuclear family. But as we just said, like even the nuclear the idea of the nuclear family is more myth than reality, right? Well, the financial sustainability of the nuclear family, I think, is an incredible fiction. The idea that 
one wage earner or two wage earners can support a family. I think this is the thing that your generation contends with the most. You know, there's every article is about how you ruin everything. You're not buying cars. You're not getting married. You're not buying houses. You're not doing this. You're also not making wages that allow you to <laughs> invest in your future. And, you know, unless you're generationally wealthy, these things are not accessible to you. But I think previous generations that the ability to accumulate wealth was fundamental to the ability to establish solid families. And so I don't know if the problem is anyone's kind of moral tendencies. I think the problem is it's very expensive and cost prohibitive to have strong families cost money in this country. And so we know what financial stress, what a lack of education, a lack of resources can do to parents and their ability to parent. And so there's this weird kind of thing that happens where we see the vilification of single family homes, but we also don't see the rise in wages. We see the loss of a social safety net Around the corner from the Clinton years, we'll see really bad sex education being infiltrating the schools, and we'll see a lack of abortion access, a lack of access to birth control and family planning resources, and then a nation that can't understand why people can't get their act together. I think this is an interesting thing about marriage as solving problems, because that has a long history in the U.S. as well. And I, you know, this is, this one gets really complicated because Marriage solves a lot of problems when people have lots of money. <laughs> I mean, so here's the thing. Like, all of these things are true if people have wealth to draw from in order to meet their basic needs. Yes. And so, and then some. And then some. And if emergencies happen, it doesn't ruin anyone's life. Then, yes, all of these things are true. I was volunteering at a women's shelter that was run by YWCA. And I was talking to someone who was a volunteer once, and she said, one of the things that we have to deal with is the fact that when women are released from prison, one of the first things that some of these volunteer groups would do is to like bring them in close proximity to like a mixer or something where they could meet men who were just recently released, and they would try to get them together in pairs, right? Try to kind of like match make a little bit to see, you know, if they could kind of figure out a stable home. And many of these women were victims of domestic violence or other types of abuse. If they weren't kind of abused within, you know, facilities in which they were incarcerated, right? And the first thing that they learned was that they had to find a partner. And what this organization was trying to do was to teach them, you know, the kind of skills that they would need to manage their lives outside of prison. And so I think that there is a way in which heterosexuality and marriage become answers that are just problems of capital, social, political, financial, and otherwise. And, and that is something that has not changed in this country and has been a dominating ideology for like over a century. Well, I mean, it's like the, the idea that, you know, you just go kind of like doll yourself up a little bit, like find you a man and like all your problems will go away is really deep, deeply rooted within our understanding. And it's it's so inextricably linked to kind of capitalism because it actually we, we do think that, you know, the diamond ring kind of a, a allows you access to a certain type of lifestyle, right? And we know that both the ring and the lifestyle are, are, are fictive often because of the wealth that you have prior to it. We were talking about this earlier, Mike and I. It's like, people don't want to get married because zero plus zero equals zero. So you can't combine <laughs> assets you don't have. <laughs> and I also think, I mean, I think in terms of, you know, so what does this mean then for welfare reform? You know, what does this mean for a social safety net that just gets smaller and smaller and the number of people who need resources becomes bigger and bigger? And the cultural kind of like 
laser focus is on kind of the individual. And it gets even worse because it's saying, well, there's something bereft in the fact that you're marrying less and you're purchasing less assets. It's kind of like a like a faint because it sends you over here where really what's going on is a, is a shrinkage of the social safety net, the kind of the devaluation of kind of like our, our assets in general, whatever assets you might have, kind of the, the, the shrinking of work, kind of like the destruction of industries. There's all the stuff that gets blamed on us being a little too single and maybe a bit too, I don't know, slutty. <laughs> <laughs> Marriage is a really great way, or telling people to get married is a really great way to shift the responsibility that a government might owe to its people onto individuals to each other. Oh, yeah. Well, also, I mean, I think the thing about it too, you know, personal responsibility. I mean, gosh, what loaded language I know that, and for that to designed to make you feel like the worst person in the world. And when we think about, you know, when people get up in arms in terms of, you know, when you hear these these very far right people talk about, you know, like it's the Paul Ryan sensibility. If you make your kids own lunch, then your kid will value lunch. But if they get lunch at school, then they, you know, they lose some of their human dignity. This kind of thinking that a person, when they need the resources of the state or the community, they will feel bad. Or they're less of a person. Or they're less of a person. Well, none of these things have to happen. And I think that, you know, welfare to work, it was just... It was also such a, a growth opportunity for these low-level, you know, subcontractors to employ people at very low wages. And I think that this idea that the personal responsibility moment could be so beneficial to industry, uh, that part of the frame just kind of gets erased. And and the idea that poor people have never worked before is also a really kind of fascinating idea. And this is the kind of Reagan era welfare queen nonsense. And I think a few years ago it was on Slate. That guy did that excellent article finding out who the welfare queen that Reagan was talking about. And it was this white woman who like could like mask herself like she was really good at makeup. You know, if this were a different period, she would have one of those tutorials on YouTube and she could like do all the contouring and make herself look young, all this stuff. So it's a projection about black women carried out by a fraud done by a white woman. And so a president can pick up on that so that white voters can hate black people more. Wow, that train is never late. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the train is never late. And, and, and you think to yourself, you know, oh, this would be no big deal if it didn't imperil the health and the, and the welfare of so many people. Oh, yeah. And so um, we're just getting one of the producers to talk. To, yeah. I won't do it. You go ahead and do it. What's going on? <laughs> I'm going to pull up the article really quickly so I don't misquote it. Well, yeah. So, but I did uh, want. Can I make one more comment? Sure, though? of course. Yeah, witnessing my my mother go to work and work forty to sixty hour work weeks didn't necessarily teach me the value of hard work, but just taught me that poor people weren't allowed to make mistakes and that nobody was going to look out for us. Wow, retweet that. I mean, that I, that's such a. You know, I went to um. I was having dinner with some academics recently and one of them studies home health care workers and i said oh my you know that's what my mom did and this is that kind of work it's the low wage work of a lot of immigrant women a lot of women of color and it it does it just teaches you that like the world is so deeply unfair <laughs> i guess i value hard work because i know how much harder it could be but i think about the ways that you know people like my mom and the people in her orbit took such a great sense of pride that they were not on public assistance. But then on the other hand, I'm kind of like, 
if you could get some assistance, some help. maybe your body wouldn't be so degraded at such a young age and maybe you'd be home more, right? And so there's a way in which among the dynamics of the poor and the working class that even that the self-hatred and the self-contempt for people who you are like one paycheck away from is also really powerful. Oh, yeah. It, 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 and it's deeply rooted and deeply painful. I mean, I think there, there are definitely psycho social and physiological damages, right? I'm thinking of Courtney Cogburn's work, um, psychologist out of Columbia, that talks about like the like the psychological effects or excuse me, the physiological effects of implicit racism. Mm. So there's a way in which like white people and black people can go into a room and see like a racial slur and both kind of have their blood pressure go up. But it's like the 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 like death by a million cuts type deal that goes on with with, with black people and poor people in different ways where they understand on a like a dog whistle level, what's going on in like these little intimate moments of degradation? I, I love the financial advice shows, and all of these people are so proud of themselves for not, you know, I didn't, I didn't get unemployment, I didn't get this. These are things that you actually paid into, boo boo. Like this, you deserve it. it's, it's like it's, when yeah. you get excited for your tax refund, and you're like, wait, but I had paid that money in. It's a refund, not a bonus check. Yeah. And I think that there's a way where the state is so powerful and making us feel so undeserving that when we get the resources that we've actually invested in as taxpayers, we think we're getting either a gift or something that we don't deserve. But what's really powerful is that now that my mom has to live on Social Security, it's a really precarious life. And I think it's, I think this is the first time in her life that she's thinking to herself, wow, I really wish there was actually something for me at this stage in my life. But the, there's a way that the elderly have always been protected from the rhetoric of the undeserving poor until very recently. And now they're coming even for the Social Security in terms of the kind of financial personal responsibility rhetoric. And that's actually really powerful because there was a time where very small children and the elderly could be protected. But again, due to the shifting racial demographics of our country, more and more children are children of color and more and more of the elderly are elderly people of color. And so those two social positions, I think, are now not considered with the same type of... Not the sacred cows that they want to Yeah, were. they're just not. And it's just, like, I'm thinking about it because it's like, if there's a situation in which you've got less and less people that we ever... See, well, actually, no. Really what it is is that no one is really deserving of government assistance. Right. <laughs> The people that are least deserving of it or can be the scapegoats for why it should go away are people of color, particularly black people and particularly, and even more particularly black women. And so how do we think through, okay, what – because honestly, it's not, it's not something that needs to stay as it is. It's an expansion. But uh, currently we're under defense to even protect the little <laughs> scraps that we got. So, you know, really it's kind of like, well, then what what is even – the kind of the cultural rhetoric that you can use for the expansion of the social safety net rather than the degradation of it. Yeah, I don't I I couldn't tell you because I don't I don't know. You know, I think that as again, I think I was at the tail end of something in this country where you could get some things. And I think that having grown up with the AIDS, the dawn of the AIDS crisis, I think that had something to do with some shifting senses of compassion towards the vulnerable. You know, having grown up with Reagan amnesty and then this, the complete removal of that as a mechanism, all of those things. I mean, yeah, I think generationally, I really, my heart goes out to your generation in terms of the expectation to fund and build your futures 
with very little resources. You're right. I mean, it, it is, it's, it's some, cause it's, it's really like a Jedi mind trick. Cause I mean, even now I have the benefit of educational privilege. I have the benefit of the specific educational privilege to know about this stuff. Right. So I'm, I'm kind of like, I've done research on both American political history and social history, social policy for like the last, let's say five years of my life. And yet it's still, I get really upset with myself in terms of, well, how did you end up here where you feel like you've, you've got like two paychecks away from complete disaster? And I, and I, I have a vague understanding of, of the fact that it's not completely my fault, and yet it, to me it's always my fault. And, and, and that's not something that is limited to me. I know that is something that's much more generalized, and yet it still kind of is, is a deep and personal frustration and aggravation that I have with myself. And you can't really wrestle it away from yourself, right? Yeah, speaking of personal decisions, I was, I was thinking about the ways I felt societally coerced into pursuing higher education. I knew that my earnings would likely be higher if I went. It's In some ways, I feel sort of a similar pressure to get married just because it's so strongly correlated. We live in a society that rewards um, marriage to at least higher income folks and their children. And I feel like if I want to make a good decision for my future children, I will get married and then have children. But it, it feels more icky than um, feeling coerced into higher education. And I'm still deciding what it means, what this history means for my own personal decisions. Will I buy into the institution of marriage or what kind of family will I create one day? Yeah, I wanted to know both of your thoughts on what significance this history bears on sort of your personal decisions and have you thought through that? Yeah, I'd take it there. Um, yeah, so that's an interesting one. So my mom was a divorced single mom and it's kind of funny I never felt stigmatized by my mom's divorce or single parent status, but I think it's because I just had like stronger ego boundaries and strength than other people because I know other people who are like, oh my God, we were the only divorced people. I think it's because we weren't part of a, we weren't in a class of people where these things mattered. And I think because um, in many ways we were racialized and othered, like we were not competing with the types of people in communities who would care if someone was married or not. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't think that made a difference, but I will say this. I have observed the difference in a number of ways between me and my friends who had more of the traditional nuclear family, for good and for bad. I think that growing up in a single parent household, you grow up faster, you take more responsibility because you have to. You're just taking care of things. You know, at a very young age, I knew my social security number, I knew how to fill out my forms. I think some of that's also having an immigrant parent, but you know, like, I always had a very secure sense that I could take care of myself. And I think from a young age, having jobs and having to earn, these are these some of these things are, I think, really positive, especially for young women. Where I do think it it was hard is just the anxiety of having to make enough last. Worrying about kind of your material reality, worrying about like if something happens, then will I have a place to live? Will we be able to do these things? And I think that's, I think it's hard. I think it's stressful. It creates a lot of anxiety. And what happens is that even if you become financially successful when you grow up, you always, you know, you always live with that sense of, 
I could lose all of this right now. What's my side hustle? What's my plan? And I think it just kind of changes the way your brain works and the way you relate to society. Marriage is an interesting one because it is both a, um, it's an emotional decision animated by feelings that has state and social implications. And I don't like the fact that these kind of two things are tied to these other two things. But that's kind of where we are. For me personally, getting married was important because it allowed me a kind of stability and anchoring that my life up to that point did not prioritize. But that's just me. And that's just kind of my stuff. Does everyone need to get married? No. The financial and economic benefits of marriage concern me because I don't think people should have to get married in order to have health insurance. I don't think people should have to get married to get better car insurance rates. Like, I don't like the fact that there are financial incentives tied to marriage. And for me, I like the family that I'm able to create through my marriage. I was just going to say one big piece about this is like, think about the immigration benefits to marriage. Absolutely. Like, it's the only way that a single person without a family tie or, for example, like a crazy multi-million dollar in some ways employer sponsorship can like adjust your legal status in this country. Yeah. like the and, and the idea that it is so tied to that kind of really intensive institution, it, think, about, think about the choices. Think about the many, many women that stay in abusive relationships Absolutely. because they feel like they, ha- they have no choice in terms of their immigration status. So we really have, have created an institution that kind of because of its benefits, it creates costs. Oh, absolutely. That's a really good way of putting it. And also, I mean, just think about, you know, gender inequality in pay. A lot of it, people believe, gets mitigated by your spouse's earnings. That's some bullshit because basically, I mean... It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And also, it also, I mean, so what it does, I think, at for young people your age, it adds a lot of implications and assumptions to what partnership is. Even if you're not seeking this kind of traditional idea of partnership, it embeds all of these layers onto something and you're just trying to meet someone on your Tinder or your apps, the young people use, right? Like, but all of these things get kind of the apps these days, you know, (laughs) I mean, it adds all these layers and this power structure that you're like, I didn't even sign up for this. I was just trying to meet someone to have a drink with, right? And I will say this as, you know, someone who is from a family where there were a lot of divorces and a family where I've seen a lot of people struggle as single parents, for me, marriage has provided a kind of security that I appreciate, but I never get it twisted or confused that that security couldn't just change at any moment, right? Like it's all fun and games when you're in a financially stable household, but one illness, one you know, dip in the market, one job loss, and you can find yourself on the other side of something. And I think that this is the part of the analysis that gets lost in the narrative of the strength of the two family household. It's strong until it's not. Exactly. And um, is it, I think it's trapped in America's so- social safety net, where the author documents, uh, I think, her in-laws experience after like a very tragic car crash. The married couple ends up getting divorced so they can split their assets and qualify for Medicaid. And so 
it doesn't really guarantee anything. And sometimes there, there's like a real strange incentive to to split up because for whatever reason, that's the way our social safety net, because we've tied social safety net programs so closely to marriage and assets in our financial situation. It's almost a salary ban. So it's not even, so it's marriage and then it's marriage on top of a number of different factors. So it becomes a kind of a complex web to kind of like navigate. I mean, a few years ago, there were all these articles in the New York Times about people who didn't have enough money to really divorce. So couples are done with each other trying to date in one house. I mean, it just gets messy. Yeah. But what do you get? I mean, couples who stay together for the health insurance coverage, you know, people who have to stay together or people who, who you know, artificially break up, not only for medical benefits, but to try to figure out how they're going to pay for their kids' schools. And so, so then we have this kind of culture of like social loopholing, that everyone is just looking for the loophole in order to survive instead of being able to kind of freely and authentically kind of live their lives without fear of being caught. And so, you know, I, I, I think that anytime we believe that all of our decisions are animated by our hearts, we're fooling ourselves. And if we believe that um, if we just work hard enough and we earn enough, we can be so far enough from ever needing anything, most of us, you know, can't, most of us, it's not true. And so here we find ourselves in a context in which people who will never need those resources and people who have the most freedom to let their hearts animate their decisions are the ones who are making the decisions for everyone else. You know, the politicians are the ones who have the most resources, have had the most freedom in many contexts, and now they're writing policy for the people who are most constrained. I think Mia Birdsong's organization, Family Story Project, does a really good job of challenging what the contemporary family looks like, dispelling a lot of myths about what's best for children, and really making the case for the, the fact that it's not that nuclear families are necessarily better for children, but that we have created uh, a set of social safety net programs and a society that benefits nuclear families. And I think another great thing that Family Story Project does uh, is highlighting chosen family and the ways people are sort of interdependent on one another financially, emotionally, across different geographies, without any blood ties or any sort of legal ties to one another. And it's not so much that children fall through the cracks because their parents aren't taking care of them, but it's because government refuses to recognize their families as families. I think this is a great conversation. It reminds me a few years ago um, when I was on the faculty at Oklahoma, and we were trying to come up with some type of family leave policy because the university had none. And so it was really hard because as a group of people, we were trying to talk about not prioritizing one set of families over the other, right? And I was just trying to think of like who belongs in my family. And if we define family by the people who've taken care of us, then my family is huge and expansive. Um, as a college professor, I actually live on campus as a faculty in residence. And there are many students that I feel like are my family. I would be there for them in an emergency and they would be there for me. And when I think about the people I've known for the longest, you know, I've known my best friend from college longer than I've known my husband. They are both members of my family and we have different ties. And I think to myself, when we think about family leave policies, I would love to live in a world that says, you know, my college mentor is sick. I'm going to need four days off to take care of him or to take care of her. You know, my best friend from college just lost their health care. So they're going to be added to my policy until they can get back on their feet. And I think that 
these are the very acts that we can't be visible about, right? So we lie. Oh, that's my aunt that I have to take care of. Or I'm going to stay together with this person or I'm going to break up with this person because of the healthcare implications, right? We are never given the opportunity to fully articulate the depth and the expansiveness of our families. And so what should a family look like? A family should be a group of people that are consistently concerned with the care of the other members of the family. And we need to live in a society that understands that our chosen families are often the families that will be with us until the very end. And so I think that for your generation, the one thing I will say is that you've grown up in a moment where people have challenged the notion of family. And I hope that gives you the inspiration and the resources to recreate the kinds of families that are not only good for you, um, but also good for helping us turn the tide on some of these issues. Thank you so much, Dr. Chatlin, um, Associate Professor at Georgetown University, for coming and talking with us. Um, two things before we we end. Um, two quick links that I wanted to alert everyone to. There is a report from New America um, in the Family Centered Social Policy Program that, Micah, I'll let you talk about since you work there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've released a report, or Rachel rather, and a few other folks released a report. Um, Rachel who? Rachel Black, Director of Family Centered Social Policy, released a report called Becoming Visible, which follows the lives of a few mothers living in Jackson, Mississippi, and sort of their experiences taking care of their families and navigating social assistance programs there. It really highlights the ways they really show up for their communities and their families, and I think really provides a really robust portrait of how social programs have really stigmatized single motherhood, stigmatized single black motherhood specifically, and reaches far back into sort of the history of black codes in Mississippi and how they've informed social policy. And so I think it's a really important read. Yeah, and more locally, um, in our direct message blog the, of the Millennials um, Public Policy Fellowship Program, one of the really interesting, but I think got a lot of traffic, was Rosalind Miller's piece, um, Good Grief is Christmas, which is all about chosen family and how you kind of like understand and create your family kind of, especially from a number of different perspectives with different kind of familial and non-familial backgrounds. So I think it's great. With that said, thank you so much, Dr. Chatlin. Thank you. This was so fun. We had a lot of fun. Episode one of we'll see how many. We'll see what we'll see what, we'll what see happens. This has been um, the Direct Message Podcast, a production of New America with support from the City Foundation. I am your co-host, Christian Hossam. And I'm your other co-host, Maya Sampson. And thank you for allowing us to slide into your DMs. Where can people hit you up, Maya? You can slide into my DMs at New America FCSP on Twitter, or you can reach me at Sampson at newamerica.org. You can email me at hosam at newamerica.org. You can message me, but don't slide into my DMs at hosam underscore Christian. You can reach our guest, Dr. Marsha Chatlin at Dr. M. Chatlin, C-H-A-T-E-L-A-I-N on Twitter. You can find more information about the podcast and our program more generally at Direct Message NA on Twitter. Thanks for listening to Direct Message. We'd like to direct you some great policy resources. Please read some of the great work that's coming out of New America about the topics that we talked about today. On our own direct message blog, we have a great article about chosen families by Rosalind Miller, who does really great work in kind of um, unpacking what it means to kind of be in a family. 
Rachel Black and Alita Sprague in Family Center Social Policy here at New America have done a lot of great work around the myth of the welfare queen. Back in September of 2016, they put out this really great uh, article in The Atlantic called The Welfare Queen is a Lie that runs through the very anti-black history origins of the stereotype of the welfare queen. And in Becoming Visible, a paper that FCSP put out, I think last November, goes all the way back to Mississippi's uh, black codes um, and how they're very closely tied to work requirements in social safety net programs. So I would recommend that everyone give those two things a read. And you can find the links to those articles in the description. Thank you.